Hello and welcome to a very special edition of NITV News where we'll take a look back at some of the big stories and issues that made headlines across Indigenous Australia this year. And there have certainly been some big moments over the past 12 months. From the black summer bushfires to the global COVID-19 health pandemic, the Black Lives Matter marches and the destruction of 45,000-year-old sites at Duke and Gorge. Shortly, I'll be joined by some of our hard-working NITV news team who, despite the many challenges 2020 has presented, have been reporting on these stories for us. But first, a look back at the year that was and a quick warning, some viewers may find some of this footage distressing. There have been no convictions, no convictions of any police officer for killing or assaulting Aboriginal people. This is how bullying affects a nine-year-old kid. Clayton, no doubt we're all thinking about you, mate. I'm, I'm sorry you've had to go through what you go through, but you've got a family there that are very strong and they love you, and there's a lot of people in the community that, that support you and love you too. I bring in uh, a strong message, a strong voice. Today, I speak in my cultural truth that children who are raised under this practice deserve only love, respect, dignity and acceptance. It's hard like a tsunami when you're told that your auntie, your, be your beloved family has passed away on a concrete floor in a watch house in Brisbane. That this officer doesn't have a chequered history for mine. If, if it certainly is complaints sustained against him, you would have to say he's had a bad day. And it must have been one, one day for him. Every day is a bad day for Aboriginal people. We're talking about near 50,000 years of human occupation in this site. Money can't buy this back. Nothing can replace what is gone now. all happened so fast. It's very emotional, it's um, heart-wrenching. This virus could easily render communities in a state of paralysis should it ever become an issue. Where is the safe place for this mob? Are we left out in the cold to die? And have you been concerned about the COVID at all? Yeah, we're staying away from people. It only took 99 years. I'm so proud to be the first, but I'm also the, to acknowledge all the Indigenous finalists and in, Indigenous cities for the Archibald this year. Yeah, no doubt about it. 2020 has been a year like no other. And joining me here in the studio to talk it all through is NITV's digital editor, Jack Lattimore. Our deadly all-round journalist, Kira Jenkins, and one of the newest members of the team, political correspondent, Sarah Collard. So, welcome, 
Sarah, tell us firstly, how have you been settling in there in Parliament House down on Ngunnawal country? Oh, it's been going great, Nat, and I'm really happy to be here. Um, yeah, so just getting stuck into it. It's been a busy period with the final couple of weeks of sitting, but yeah, it's been going well. well. Yeah, you certainly hit the ground running. And Jack, great to see you in person, because of course you were in lockdown down in Melbourne for much of the year. Yeah, I've emerged. I've free range Jack. <laughs> uh, it's been tough. I went in, we went in early into lockdown, so March 11, somewhere around that period, through to late October. So I uh, put on a few kilos, lost my hair. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's great to be you know, out and about again. Yeah, fantastic to see you here. And Kira, you and I were both here in Sydney where the SBS studios were, but certainly must have been a strange experience for you, kind of this challenge of, of how to report remotely when we all have to stay at home. Yeah, I packed up my stuff one Friday afternoon and didn't come back to the office for three months. So that was an interesting experience trying to do, you know, look lives from my living room and, <laughs> and that kind of stuff. And I mean, if you had told me that I would have been doing interviews at my dining table 12 months ago, I would have laughed you out of the room. But now, you know, how good Zoom, right? That's right. And look, coronavirus has not only affected all of our, of our lives, but it's also dominated, naturally enough, our, our news coverage here at NITV, particularly the risks it posed to our communities. From March, we saw remote communities go into lockdown with only essential workers allowed in to ensure, of course, that residents were protected from COVID-19. We also saw our community-controlled health organisations go on the front foot. They were warning that it would be disastrous if this virus were to spread amongst our communities, with many of our people, of course, already living with chronic health conditions and in overcrowded homes. And our Indigenous media organisations moved quickly to deliver information to mob, worried about how the virus could affect them, and offering some important health messages, like this one from Nada Media, about hand hygiene. Ooh, I make the water run, the water run. Some soap and sing goodbye, Corona. Oh, I'm making bubbles come, bubbles come. Scrubbing hands is so much fun, goodbye, goodbye. Fingers to her up, side to side. And I'm being kind, wash your mara every time, every time. Bye, 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 bye. So a little bit of humour there, but at the time, of course, there were really serious concerns about the impact that the virus could have if there were to be an outbreak in any one of our communities. And Jack, the APY lands were actually one of the first regions in the country to go into lockdown. And this was something that they decided to do themselves voluntarily well before it was ordered by state and federal governments. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we spoke for a story for online. We spoke with... Uh... APY chairman, I think, uh, Richard King. And, yeah, he told us that they voluntarily went in, I think, in February. So at that stage, we were still... Uh, the coronavirus was in on Australian, you know, uh, soil, mm -hmm. but um, we didn't see the biosecurity lockdowns. There was still, you know, health councils, health organisations were still struggling to adequately have uh, PPE, adequate PPE supplies. Um, and they just recognised real early that they had to shut down. And uh, Richard told us that even if it bought them a week, then that was potentially averting a really devastating sort of worst-case scenario. So, yeah, they were at the forefront of it. And we kind of seen that 
in terms of, uh, you know, regional areas, remote areas, really, you know, at the forefront of, of that, um, the whole sort of COVID biosecurity regulations before the regulations went in. So it was really cool. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of praise for our remote regions and our health services in how quickly yeah. they acted to protect well, our mob. Everyone mobilised as well. So we've seen the, that little clip um, and other you know, First Nations Media Association were heavily involved in pushing out a lot of similar awareness type campaigns. Um, we had celebrities get on board and they did their bit. So, you know, the whole broad community mobilised to really you know, get us at the forefront, make sure that we're okay. Because, uh, yeah, it was, it was potential there for real devastating sort of outcomes. That's right. And Kira, I know you did a lot of coverage throughout the year speaking to people in lockdown to see how they were, they were coping. What, what were they telling you? It was certainly a, a tough time if you're already in a remote community and now, you know, you're locked down, you, you can't leave. Must have been really tough on some of our mob. Yeah, I think early on there was a lot of fear around... Um, you know, we didn't really know anything about the virus. We didn't know how long we might be in lockdown. We didn't know anything. So there was a lot of fear, especially for um, our elders, you know, the fear of losing our elders and, um, you know, people, our mob who are chronically ill, our mob who, as you said, you know, live in overcrowded housing in, in, in so many places. It was just really um, a toll on people's mental health, I think, and people were feeling isolated when we went into lockdown, um, you know, and then with the second Melbourne lockdown, there was a lot of isolation there as well. Um, but I think also with all of that kind of negative kind of feelings of isolation and, and not knowing, there was also this beautiful... Um, coming together and helping each other out. You know, there was all, you know, look out for your elders, look out for your mob. And and we got, we got through it, you know, which is really the most important thing. Absolutely. And, you know, it does sort of seem that we've seen those numbers drop right down. Talk now, of course, has turned to a vaccine. Sarah, I know you put a question to the PM the other week about a vaccine and uh, if our mob would be at the front of the queue for that when it becomes available due to, due to our chronic health conditions. What did he have to say? Well, as 2020, it's been all about the COVID-19 and now we're kind of moving towards a kind of COVID normal, so all eyes are on the vaccine. And when I uh, asked the PM uh, just last week about the vaccine, because obviously that's being rolled out in the UK and now we're thinking about when to roll it out here, the Prime Minister said that he wanted to make sure it was safe and that he was thinking that it would be rolled out in March of next year. But he was saying that he w was very concerned about Indigenous Australia Australians and their propensity towards illness and just the risks to our communities. Um, and he also said that they were consulting very closely with the health experts and the advisory panels and that they would be taking on board any recommendations for our mob and where they would go in the um, priority queues. But he's indicated that those who are vulnerable to diseases, such as our elderly, uh, that they would be first in line for the queue. So we'll just have to wait and see. But I think that, you know, for a lot of our mob, especially remote communities, that they would get some sort of priority. But we'll just have to kind of wait and see how that plays out in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I'm sure we'll hear in, in the new year perhaps a little more on that. And we will continue to talk about COVID throughout 
our show a bit later on. We, we'll have a look at the impacts that it has had on sports and the arts. But let's turn to what was undoubtedly the other major story of 2020 and the death of George Floyd in the US city of Minneapolis in May once again put the spotlight on issues surrounding racial profiling, police violence and deaths in custody. The 46-year-old's death sparked protests around the world as people stood in solidarity with the black community in the US. Here in Australia, we saw tens of thousands of people, black and white, take to the streets, some in defiance of those COVID-19 restrictions, to take part in peaceful marches, calling for action to address racial inequality, Aboriginal deaths in custody, and the high rates of Indigenous incarceration. Let's take a look and another warning that this package also contains some distressing images. change to come. I believe we're at that moment in time when it will become a movement and I believe we can make a difference. In Sydney, hundreds joined a march through the city. Protesters repeatedly chanted, I can't breathe. The final words of both George Floyd and Dungutty man David Dungay Jr, who died at Sydney's Long Bay Jail. The rally here in Darwin is a clear indication of how strongly people feel about Aboriginal deaths in custody and the Black Lives Matter movement. Organisers say this won't be the end of their fight. They are vowing to keep up these demonstrations in the weeks to come. Goodness gracious, let me tell you, the number of my head's been wet. When the midnight dew, I've been down on bending knee. Hundreds taking a knee at Trafalgar Square, a sign of solidarity and defiance. Racism kills lives every day. Every day. Before the it's... pandemic, black people were still dying. Positivity of everyone being here and the support and you know the, the allyship you know that we see here is just incredible. Yeah, even though several months have, have passed since that time, it's still really hard to, to watch some of those pictures, isn't it? And this, this really was a massive moment for our mob in 2020. As we mentioned, thousands or tens of thousands of people in Australia joined those marches in the middle of a pandemic, no less, to, to not only stand in solidarity with the US, but to highlight black deaths in custody here. Now, it is something that our people have been speaking out about and, and marching about ever since the Royal Commission. Why do you guys think that we saw the response that we did to Black Lives Matter now at, at this particular moment in time? Well, such a complex uh, 
a, a range of, of reasons why. But um, look, it was great to see so many people on the streets, particularly you know coming from Melbourne. It kind of came at the back of that first lockdown period, mm. um, and a lot of mob turned, like a lot of people turned up. Yeah. It was probably you know it was three city blocks, maybe four. So you know, forty-five to fifty thousand people. Um, so it was great to see, you know, that sort of passion and, and stuff. Um, for me, and I've written about this elsewhere, uh, it really came down to one comment that I read on social media. Um, and it was a woman that said that she could name people who had died in the States, the victims of police brutality, uh, you know, um, and she named, you know, uh, five or six of them off, you know, just like that. And then she said, but I don't know any of the four, and I th at that stage, 437 or 38, I don't know any of the Aboriginal deaths, the names of uh, people who've died in custody, Aboriginal people who've died in custody since 1991. And she said, that's why I'm here, is because that's wrong and I need to do more. And I think a lot of people felt like that. And I think off the back of that, and I'm a bit cynical, I think that it was co-opted um, by, you know, brands a fair bit. Uh, and we've all read about that, we've all mm. heard about that. But I think at its essence, it sort of prompted a lot of people to do the sorts of questioning uh, of institutions and themselves, uh, you know, that we needed to do. That the 1991 Royal Commission and the 338 recommendations were attempting to, you know, prompt people to, and institutions to do back then, uh, just took this to get across the line. And, and you know, then the momentum picked up and, um, and we've seen still uh, the effects sort of resonate from the, the mobilisation of people in the street. We, I think we can all agree there has been a, a little bit of a shift since this all started, sort of in May or late May, early June. Kira, what are some, some of the changes that, that you've seen since Black Lives Matter? Absolutely. There's been definitely changes in even the way that the media is reporting mm -hmm. on, um, you know, um, coronial inquests and those kinds of things, um, it, it's it's more in the the mainstream, I guess now, um, and I guess as well, you know, the way that George Floyd called out, you know, I can't breathe, multiple times. It was so similar to the death of um, David Dungay Jr back in 2015, so five years ago. And a lot of people I don't think had heard about David Dungay Jr. And now they have, you know, and his family has been um, cropping up a lot over the past six months um, and still trying to get um, justice for, for David. So, yeah. Saw just the other week, the family presented an open letter. So obviously the fight still continues for our people. We're still going to be highlighting these issues. What about everyone else, Sarah? Do you think this is, is going to, you know, shift, this shift can be taken for more than a moment into a movement in terms of, of creating change? I think that it has kind of shifted. That conversation has shifted. I think a lot of people recognise that we really needed to capitalise on this. And I think Australia has actually had a bit of a reckoning with race in this country. And they can't really say that they can ignore it. So I think the tone has really shifted in the media, in the workplace, in, in brands, that conversation has kind of shifted. So I do hope that we see some sort of sustained 
um, action and a reckoning of racial justice in this country. And I, I think that hopefully we will be able to see some sort of concrete changes. And I think we're starting to see that even, even now where a lot of people are just saying that it's unacceptable and they can start naming these names. But of course, with all of the positive sort of push, there's been that pushback. And we've seen that with, um, even from the march, the Melbourne march copped the blame for the outbreak uh, that put us into lockdown too. And I mean, it wasn't just from people uh, in the media or, you know, those sorts of um, culture warriors, columnists and stuff like that. It came from ministers in government. And I think Greg Hunt, the health minister himself, tried to pin the blame for, you know, the, the big outbreak in Melbourne. Yeah, the, the second uh, There was, outbreak. I think, Michael McCormack, when he was filling in as deputy PM on Quanda, he, and like three months after, um, because we had experts, uh, infectious disease experts, come out and say, you know, when Greg Hunt uh, tried to pin it on the march, the BLM march, and they said, no, it's not. Uh, and then we had, I think, the Victorian uh, health, community health uh, orgs and the, you know, Vic Health Minister, uh, officer or whatever he is, come out and say, no, it's not. But three months later, the deputy PM was saying, you know, attempting to, to place the blame for the outbreak back on the BLM march. It was extraordinary. And we've seen, you know, outside of that, they kind of set the example. And then we've seen a lot of people in community, um, you know, saying the same sorts of things. That's right. So, yeah, there's always those things that just... Overall, I think yeah, quite uh, quite positive to see that level of engagement uh, people have. But yeah, still still a little way to go. A long way. Some of these a long things. way to go. A long way to go. Yeah. Well, look, we do have to move on. I feel like we could talk about this alone uh, for the next hour. But I did want to talk to you, Sarah, a little bit about federal politics. There's been a bit happening, as we've mentioned in Canberra this year, and the federal government, of course, unveiled its updated closing the gap agreement in the middle of the year, and that included 16 refreshed targets. And look, Sarah, this announcement was quite significant in it was the first time that Indigenous organisations and our, our peak bodies had had input in actually developing these goals. Yeah, so this was the first time that Indigenous peak organisations had really had buy-in and a seat at the table with governments from uh, all the states and territories. And this refresh program uh, was a long period of consultation, over 18 months after the government recognised that the previous decade or more had failed in its objectives. And it um, looked at the targets around justice, uh, the family violence, foster care, incarceration rates, and just hoping to tackle some of those disadvantages that had been really entrenched. Uh, as we know, that there's been a few, um, I guess, indicators that have bumped that needle along within um, health and year 12 attainment rates. But a lot of, um, of those justice targets just had decade after decade had failed. So this was a chance for people to really say what they wanted and really have a say in what happens with our communities. Absolutely. As you said, it's taken 10 years, but hopefully, and, and we know it's not going to be a quick process, but hopefully we can start to see some improvements, given that we've now got that seat at the table. And look, another story that we have to discuss is, again, one of the biggest of the year and uh, actually came during Reconciliation Week of all weeks. And uh, it was revealed that the world's biggest iron ore miner, Rio Tinto, had destroyed two significant sites at Duke and Gorge in WA's Pilbara region. 
Now, there was, of course, global outrage after photos emerged of the two ancient rock shelters, which had been blown up by the miner as part of an expansion. Rio Tinto, Tinto was given approval from the state government to carry out the blasts back in 2013. That was one year before archaeologists found artefacts dating back more than 46,000 years. Now, the company later described the destruction of the site as a misunderstanding. Kira, it was a pretty big misunderstanding, this one, wasn't it? And the Rio Tinto understandably got absolutely slammed for, for its actions. Absolutely. There was not just, you know, outcry here, but all over the world, you know, there was, we saw anger. Yeah. Um, and there were calls for the CEO and a, a couple of the senior executives to stand down, which did eventually happen. And of course we saw um, the inquiry um, into the, the Jukun Gorge destruction as well. Um, and, you know, at that inquiry, Rio used language like we've dropped the ball or, um, you know, we we um, missed opportunities to, to speak with the PKKP and that was really quickly shut down by, you know, the, the committee members on that inquiry. Um, this wasn't just a, a mistake, an oops-a-daisy moment, was it? it? Was... And they've just handed down their report as well, um, their interim report, which recommends... Um, reconstructing the gorge and um, compensation for the PKKP, traditional owners, as well as, um, you know, looking at the Heritage Acts, not just in Western Australia, but as a, at a federal level, at a federal level as well. You know, it, it kind of, um, their report goes to, you know, this, our laws aren't strong enough. And we've reported, I know you've reported on, on several of these issues uh, that have exposed the, the weakness, I guess, of the cultural heritage laws, not just in, in Western Australia, which is also in the, in the process of overhauling its, its laws, but we've seen, yeah, the Jabarang uh, cultural heritage trees and, and you recently went to Bathurst where there are plans to build a, a go-kart track yeah, on, on a sacred site. Walu. So this has sort of opened up a, a bigger conversation and uh, I guess highlighting the fact that uh, while Duke and Gorge was, it was horrible, devastating news, but this is happening on a smaller scale yeah, right across the country. Uh, Tasmania recently as well, of in Terralina, um, Eagle Hawk Neck, um, uh, putting a road through uh, a, a well-known uh, burial site um, and just didn't know about it and didn't believe when people, when community members told them that it was there. And yeah, just time and time again in the work that, you know, the stories that Kira's covered um, and particularly Duke and Gorge just kept hearing uh, our Cultural Heritage, uh, Aboriginal Heritage Protection Act just has shortcomings or isn't strong enough, isn't centering us. Um, so yeah, just time and time again hearing that. As you said, Kira, I think we're just about to see some, some pictures here of, of Bathurst, the famous motorsport fans would know about now Panorama, but uh, yeah, there are plans to build a, a go-kart track up there, which is hugely concerning to, to the Wiradjuri yeah, TOs. To yeah, to Wiradjuri women. It's a women's site, so they're very concerned that they're going to lose their sacred site for a go-kart track, which is, you know, it's a massive concern to them, and, and why would it not be? You know, it's concerning too, because with so much... Uh, you know, motivated or incentive to, um, you know, ride out of the, the uh, 
the economic situation that Australia's in off the back of the pandemic, uh, being placed on fracking and, and mining, um, you know, we need those Aboriginal Heritage Protection Acts in place to make sure, you know, things like MacArthur River Mine don't get the, the green light for the expansion like they got. Um, so, yeah, this is really, this is going to be a big issue for the, until the next election, definitely. Absolutely, going forward, I'm sure we'll continue to hear about all of those things. And, look, I'm sure we could talk about it all night, but, unfortunately, that is all that we have time for in this first segment. So, Sarah and Kira, thank you both for, for joining us and for all your hard work uh, this year. As you said, despite the coronavirus lockdowns, we've there's certainly been plenty to talk about in Indigenous Australia. So, yeah, thanks for coming on the program. Thank thanks you. <laughs> well, it is time to take a break, but stay with us. Next up, Jack will reveal the top stories that our online team has reported on this this year. And we'll also get an update about the nine-year-old Murray boy Quaden Bales who made headlines around the world back in February. There's been a lot of people that have been really generous and they've given you some money. Yeah. What would you like to do with some of it? Go away to the homeless and um, let my bank. <laughs> Welcome back to our NITV News special where we're taking a look back at some of the big stories we've covered across 2020. NITV digital editor Jack Lattimore is still with us and we're also joined in the studio by Joden Perry, the executive producer for NITV News as well as the host of NITV's Rugby League program Over the Black Dot. And also joining us is NITV science and technology editor Ray Johnston. Welcome to you both. It's a pleasure to be with you, Natalie. Thank Thanks you very much. <laughs> Look, Joden, you covered a really big story for us this year that, that started out as, as a real heartbreaker, really, but I think we can now say that it's ended up having a bit of a, a positive impact. And that, of course, was the story of Murray boy Quaden Bales. Uh, talk us through, uh, through that story. Yeah, Natalie, I'll try and be a bit brief with this. There's a lot that went on in a short amount of time for the Bales family. So Quaden, of course, uh, as people will know by now, he's born with a chondroplasia, which is the most common form of dwarfism. So he's, um, he's very small in stature and has always been that way his whole life. So he goes to school and uh, he's, he's a victim of um, uh, bullying incidents with students at school. While not overtly uh, nasty incidents. It's more of um, these kids not having an awareness of his condition and they tend to do things like um, pat him on the head or comment on, on his stature. So what happened is uh, he was at school at the end of February and there was an incident happened in the basketball playground and his mother witnessed at Yarrika and it was a group of young girls sort of standing around laughing about him because he was smaller than the other kids and patting him on the head like a dog. Uh, that, was, that tended to be the final straw in a, in a row of incidents that happened over the previous few weeks. So. Quaden was obviously very visibly upset about this. Uh, he came from the school and sat with his mother. They had a big yarn about it, um, but he was just inconsolable. And Yarika was at her wit's end. So what she decided to do was pull out her mobile phone, go on Facebook Live and stream the aftermath. Now, everyone has seen that vision by now. We won't show it again. It is very distressing. And Quaden talks about uh, some dark places in, in that. But after that, uh, the video went completely viral. Like overnight, it had about 5 million views and it was just going everywhere. When I opened up Facebook the next day on the way to work, I just couldn't escape it. So I inboxed Yarrick and just said, how are you going? How's the family going? 
she was really panicked. There was a lot going on. She's like, brother, there's a lot to process. Um, um, I'll touch base with you soon. We had a yarn nowhere and she talked about the, um, the experience. And so we, we followed on with the story. But over, the, over those past weeks, so many things happened. Like there was a, there was a big outcry of support for Quaden. A lot of people came out and backed him, like actors like Hugh Jackman and all these people across the world. Uh, he went out with the Indigenous All-Stars team when they played on the Gold Coast. He led the boys out before their game. Um, and there was a lot of goodwill. Um, the comedian Brad Williams, who also has dwarfism, he started a GoFundMe for Quaden. They raised about um, $700,000, um, which, which they decided to, to send a charity and not go to Disneyland. A lot happened over those weeks, but there was a lot of nastiness too online. But at, at the culmination of that fortnight, I got in touch with Yarrick and she invited me up to Brisbane uh, to have a bit of a yarn about how those, those times played out. So I've got a bit of a snippet here just for some of the grabs from her when we had a yarn. And I guess what people didn't see is what was said and done before I started recording. It was me comforting him, comforting him and consoling him and being the typical boy Quaden is, you know, don't touch me. He thinks that I didn't stand up for him by me sharing and help try, I think I'm trying to help raise awareness. Sometimes I realise I'm actually doing more harm than good. So it's taught me a very valuable lesson as well. But at that time, of recording, I just felt hopeless. I felt really and truly hopeless. Like, what is it going to take for me to lose my son before anything happens? I can't do that. I'm not going to wait. It was a plea for help and that's been answered and so many calls have been um, still coming our way with support on how to deal with this from now. So. Yeah, the, the last two weeks have been overwhelming, lots of ups and downs, but at the end of it, we're going to see a family that is so much more stronger and a much more resilient little boy. Do you like going to school? Not really. No? How come? Because there's a lot of bullies. So, sometimes there's not nice people at school? No. Why do you think they're like that? Because they never seen different people before. Well, it doesn't... It's not like me saying rude things to other people. Bit upsetting. Yeah. There's been a lot of people that have been really generous and they've given you some money. Yeah. What would you like to do with some of it? Give it away to the homeless and um, put it in my bank. So, Jordan, that interview was uh, back in March, of course, and as we know, lots has happened to the, the Bales family uh, since that time. And Ray, he's actually, Quaden's actually gone on to become the most Googled kid in the country. Yeah, Google released their stats, you know, just recently. And Quaden is the most Googled kid in the country for, for 2020. It was around the time, actually, that he went out with the All-Stars, that searches of his name went up by over 5,000%. But also in the weeks following that, searches for school bullying and anti-bullying strategies also went through the roof. They went up by about 750% as well. So we did see a bit of positive come out of this story. And, and there was a lot of nastiness and there was a lot of people saying incorrect things about the family and defaming them. And there was a high profile case, uh, Miranda Devine said a few things on Twitter that uh, they actually took them to court and um, that case was settled. So the, the Bales family ended up with about $200,000 from that. Uh, but as I said earlier, we can see these pictures now, Natalie. Um, the family declined a trip to Disneyland from the money they raised because they went to um, Arnold 
Arnhem Land up here and they went on a healing trip for Quade and, uh, and the family after everything they've been through. So to get up there and connect with their culture and speak to some of those um, beautiful people from the top end, they even met up with our legendary songman Jalu Garawiri up there. So they went up there and just really unwound and they just really showed this family is not about the money, it's about, the, about their culture and keeping strong. Absolutely. I'd rather go to Arnhem Land over Disneyland every day myself. Any same. <laughs> now, Jack Quaden's story also proved pretty popular with our readers as well on, on yep. the online site. Those articles just were our best performing of yeah. the year. Yeah, all the international, you know, interest in them, uh, national interest. Uh, we were ahead of uh, the commercial networks. Um, and they were playing catch-up for NITV, which was good to see. Um, <laughs> not the first time either. Uh, and then... International interest, so like Quaden uh, stories, top two uh, for us for the top ten. Um, another big one was uh, the price of chops on Palm Island, uh, forty bucks a kilo, um, wow. and that you know we've, we've been hearing about the uh, the inquiry into food security. Uh, another big one for us right at the start of the year, easy to forget, was um, uh, a false letter that was attributed to Terry Yombalor and. Uh, resulted in uh, Josephine Cashman being dismissed from the government-appointed uh, senior advisory group on the voice to government. So they were the big ones for us, or, a, you know, a, a, a brush stroke across the big ones. But, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, just the, that story you were just talking about, and Quaid, and they were sort of at the, at the beginning of, of the year. You sort seems, of forget what COVID it, yeah. it does, doesn't it? 2020 <laughs> yeah. certainly been a, a really long year. So, yes, it's been very easy with uh, between Black Lives Matter and COVID to yeah, remember, well, I, remember back that that was only January. We, yeah. I didn't think we'd top them. I thought... Like we've peaked too early this year, <laughs> and, uh, and then sort of 2020 yeah, went. Yeah, nah, this little bruh. novel virus had a yeah. different idea in store for us. <laughs> and Ray, you've also been keeping a close eye on on social media and what's been trending. What are the hashtags people are using? And uh, you've noticed uh, a lot of Indigenous issues also featured very strongly across social media. Yeah, no, I think it's fair to say that Black Lives Matter has changed social media you know, possibly forever. And we saw among the top trending hashtags in Australia, we saw Black Lives Matter, we saw George Floyd, and we saw Aboriginal Lives Matter up there as well. And this has had a flow-on effect with all the other social media platforms as well, where we saw a lot of public figures, companies, brands, organisations, you know, being called out, being held accountable and being asked to be vocal about their anti-racism and to make solid statements. And we did see a lot of that. And you know, fast forward through the year, by the time you get to NAIDOC week, you've got platforms like Twitch and TikTok for the very first time highlighting and spotlighting Indigenous creators and allowing them to reach bigger audiences than they've ever been able to reach before. And, you know, TikTok just told me that the always was, always will be hashtag that reached 10 million views worldwide on the platform during that week. So it's, it's really good to see actual change occurring on these platforms that we all frequent every day. Absolutely. And look, let's talk about sport. Obviously, uh, the coronavirus pandemic meant that sport was, was very different to, to what we're used to. It certainly played havoc with a lot of the, the scheduling of, of fixtures right around the country and abroad. Jordan, I guess with your, your NRL uh, experts cap 
on. NRL was one of the first footy codes to, to resume after that, that shutdown and, and lockdown period. What, how did you think about the NRL's approach to, to COVID-19 and how it handled it? Well, they didn't muck around, Nat. Um, Peter Volandis, the, the new chairman for the Rugby League Commission, he just um, he got his hands in and got them dirty and just and sorted it out. I mean, what people probably might not remember now is the NRL was in a really bad financial situation after their last uh, CEO and a couple of the executives there. When they left, uh, there was no money in the coffers, essentially. So if the NRL didn't get back quick smart, the whole code probably would have went under. So Peter Volandis is a very good um, uh, businessman. He, he got, it, got it up, Project Apollo, got it back within two months, I think. And it was just an absolute welcome relief for everyone. Like everyone was stale at that time, sitting around worried about the world, didn't know what to do. They needed something stable in their lives. So to get that NRL back was an absolutely terrific achievement. Um, pretty good comp too, Nat. Um, it was, you know, 26 games in a row. No one had a time to take a breath. The cream of the crop did rise to the top. Um, sour cream though for me. I didn't like <laughs> Melbourne Storm or Penrith Panthers, but they were the two best teams all year. The two best teams, uh, they didn't have any significant injuries uh, in their squads because there's a lot of bash and barge over 24 weeks straight. So that they did really well. It was a really uh, terrifically run comp. But um, well done to all those teams like the Warriors in Melbourne. They had to relocate across the ditch and to Sunshine Coast and be away from their loved ones. They did it pretty tough um, yeah, in the spirit of the game. Yeah, in a time where of, of great uncertainty. So. Yeah. It was a great result, uh, like the Premiership. And people forget, yeah, Penrith, long drought before they could win a comp, heartbreak. But people forgot that Melbourne had been in lockdown for, at that stage, six, six and a half, seven months. Yep. Hadn't been outside a lot, you know, um, and nothing else was going on. So a lot of people were watching, even AFL supporters were watching rugby league and, you know, when Melbourne won, Melbourne was jubilant. And, and they deserved it, Jack. Like, I know you're a Melbourne fan, you know, I'll give you credit <laughs> for that. But, you know, it was a new game this year, a couple of yeah. new rules in the ruck that really sped up the game and um, increased the collisions. The first couple of games back from the coronavirus shutdown, Melbourne got touched up a couple of times by the Raiders and whatnot. They adapted quick. They won the comp. Full yep. credit. Just hopefully they don't do it again next year. <laughs> and Jack, you mentioned the AFL there. It must have been pretty weird for, for you Victorians, it, especially to see the grand final moved up to Brisbane. That was heartbreaking in itself. I mean, grand final day in Melbourne, and particularly when there's two Melbourne sides playing, is fantastic. It, it, that day itself, it's quiet. Then half-time people are out on the empty streets kicking the ball around. Like, it's, it's a real thing. So... All of that was missing in the lead-up. We still had uh, the grand final day parade public holiday. No parade. Um, <laughs> it was weird. Uh, it was a weird year. There's no rules anymore. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's like people didn't know what to do. And then it came back and, you know, clubs were in the hubs uh, out of, out of mm -hmm. Victoria. Um, a lot of people that uh, sort of rabid AFL uh, fans, they didn't get back either like they just the year was off kilter for them and they found it difficult to come back a bit like the pies so got knocked out early at least we had the sport though at least we had that's it. right yeah. and hopefully now we can we can move into and resume as as normal or as covid normal from next season but there was some great news uh just a couple of weeks ago about go about for one of our favorite sports stars who also happens to be a regular here on nitv news mark ella one of rugby's all-time greats was honored recently with elevation to legend status in the new south wales hall of champions he's of course one of three brothers to play the
the game for Australia. He won 25 test caps for the Wallabies between 1980 and 1984, and he actually started in all 25 of those matches. Now, the honour sees him join the likes of Donald Bradman, we can see there, and also Yvonne Goolagong. Now, we caught up with the legend himself to find out what he reckons about this honour. I did ask him, I said, can you go any further? And they said, no, you've reached the top, mate. When I first started playing, I guess, rugby, obviously with my brothers, Glen Gary, yeah, we were the, the black guys and yeah, we were a bit of a, an oddity to, to the game. So we set about changing, changing, I guess, the way rugby was played, particularly in, in Australia. Yeah, he certainly, certainly did change the game, but how good is Mark Geller? Can you go any higher well, than legend? We, we work with Mark. We've <laughs> always known he's a legend, but it's good it is he's officially recognised that. But he retired so early too. He did. It just imagine, imagine five more years or so of watching Mark Geller play and, and the highlight reel would have taken up your whole hard drive. Is that good? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, look, uh, we do have to wrap this uh, segment up. But, Joden, before you go, looking ahead to, to 2021, obviously we're starting to see some of those restrictions ease. Hopefully we'll have crowds back in the stadiums in most states soon. What can we look forward to sports-wise in, in 2021? Sports-wise, I just, I just think we're going to see um, terrific sporting products all across the country. I mean, a lot of pressure on everyone this year, people not feeling well. I think we get back to a bit of normality. We're going to see um, the cream rise to the top again, but this time it might be the Canberra Raiders in the NRL now. I, I reckon so, Raiders hey? Premiership in 2021. We'll call it now. Up the milk. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, Joden, and Merry Christmas to you and your family. You too. And uh, stay with us. We will be back after the break and we'll be joined by the wonderful Rachel Hocking, host of The Point, who will join us to talk about all the year in arts. See you soon. <laughs>to our NITV News special where we're looking back at some of the big stories of the past 12 months. NITV digital editor Jack Lattimore and science and technology editor Ray Johnston are still with me and also joining us is one of the hosts of The Point, the lovely Rachel Hocking. And Rach, it's certainly been quite the year, hasn't it? I know you guys at The Point had plans this year to, to get out into community and do mm. some shows, but, uh, yeah, coronavirus had some different ideas. It definitely did. I mean, it's really hard to think back all the way to February when we hosted, I think it was the first week of March, actually, our first show on Yaru country in Broome. And that was meant to be the template for the entire year. We were going to see so many different communities across this country. And then, bam, you know, the world changed and we had to adapt to that new world. And we did. I think, like everyone, we realised very quickly that First Nations media had a very important role to play. Figured out what Zoom was. I'd never used it in my life. <laughs> Figured out how to social distance on set. <laughs> how to use mics in a safe way, a COVID That's safe right. way. And it certainly changes the way we gather news and do our jobs. No, it's extremely. And, you know, I think we had Kira talking at the beginning of the show. She's figured out how to do stories from her kitchen table that she was doing out in communities up until this point. So 
completely new world, but we found a way to make sure that the job that we do, which is so important for our communities, bringing information to them was still being done. And I think the news even went to seven days a week at the beginning of the we year. We did, during the height of, of coronavirus. But, Ray, we'll get you to weigh in here as our science and tech editor, because tech has played such an enormous role now in our lives. As Rach mentioned, none of us had even heard of this Zoom thing <laughs> yeah. back in February, and we all know how to Zoom now so yeah and it's not just for work you know people were using zoom for doctor's appointments or kids schooling or to play trivia with their friends or you know reporting like we were and you know, we were also using social media in ways that we'd never used before you know the the mob feeds facebook page springing up that so that we all had <laughs> recipes to cook while we we're in isolation i know what others are having right? <laughs> how our they make their curried sausages <laughs> exactly but our reliance on technology was huge and I think one of the things that was really highlighted this year as well was how great our digital divide is in this country. You know, I don't want to think about how I would have gotten through this time without internet or, you know, a phone or a computer, but so many people did and that's something that really needs to change. That's a really good point because I think we saw that with families, with school children and with people mm -hmm. who work in remote places especially they really fell behind and that yeah. was just not fair. We need to have better infrastructure in place. And one of the industries, of course, that was really hard hit by this virus is one I know that you love, Rach, and you've done some great coverage for us this year about the arts sector. How have our Indigenous artists coped during that time and, and how are they doing now? Look, it was bloody devastating. I think that's the only way to put it. When we found out in March and April just how hard this was going to hit, and across all arts industries, I think in April and May they had some surveys come out at the beginning and it had already estimated that hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue for artists in across industries and dance and music was being lost. So by now it'd be billions. And this is something we can't get back. And there are some industries or there are some artists which are not going to be able to build back their careers. But our artists are so bloody resilient. They are. And what we realised in this moment as well is that during crises, we actually need the arts more than ever. We need creativity. We need people who shine a light on the world in a creative and an interesting and an entertaining way. And so our artists responded amazingly. You know, we had the COVID song that you saw at the beginning <laughs> there. Right. We had um, Acacia and Nookie put out a 1.5 song and it was a bloody, it was a bad track. <laughs> it was a, yeah. song, it was a really, really good. good one. And then Black Lives Matter happened and our artists responded to that as well, despite everything they'd already been put through. We've seen so many anthems inspired by Black Lives Matter and the NAIDOC theme, always was, always will be. I think it's bloody incredible, but you have all noticed how many artist events, how many music concerts have all gone virtual this year. Dobby performed to an empty opera house. Uh, I think Ziggy Ramo performed to an empty opera house and they just live streamed them. We've found ways to adapt. We certainly have. And there were still some highlights throughout the year despite COVID. And, and you know, one of the important moments was seeing Vincent Namajira win the Archibald Prize, the first Aboriginal artist to win it in its 99-year history. And not only that, his winning portrait, of course, was of um, Adam Goods. Mm. So how, how significant was it, that? I don't think anyone could have 
um, underestimate how important that moment was. And, you know, of course, Mae Wyatt got the packing room prize as well. And yeah, it was a bit of a blackout at the end. It was. <laughs> we had Uncle Hubert as well with the win prize. And I think um, what this moment showed is is the um, domino effect of Black Lives Matter and just how important that movement has become. He didn't win because of Black Lives Matter, but that has inspired art, it has inspired a movement, it's inspired us to think about black lives, and that portrait is about racism and it's about standing up for being black. And I just think that it's an awesome portrait as well. I've followed Vincent's work for years and he is so bloody deserving of that win. That's right. I know he's entered the Archibalds on quite a few occasions leading up, so great to see. And how great was his grab that we heard off the top of the... About time. The show, about time. <laughs> about time. <laughs> and look, about time too, that uh, one of our absolute favourites, Archie Roach, was inducted into the Hall of Fame just the other week of the Arias Hall of Fame and Jack and Rach, I know you've both had a fair bit to do with Uncle yeah. Archie over over the times. Just a, a wonderful moment to, to see him honoured that way. Yeah, and look, I, I always say overdue because Uncle Archie, I think, is, is, he's a legend to all of us. And um, I've met him a number of times now and I've never met a more gentle, sincere soul. And, and funny. And funny. People get that. Like you, a lot of people go, Ash, you know, Uncle Ash, he's always there and talking so soulfully with his eyes shut. He's a, he's a cracker. He is. Even accepting this award, he pointed out how lethal we're looking and I'd hate, and to, ain't they? I'd hate to fall over. And yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, even in that moment. Yeah. Yep. And, and when we were at Byron Bay, was that that was last year? Or oh, don't. Mixed up. Beginning of last um, year, it was. Time is a construct, oh, Jack. It's an old loop. Um, but we asked him, the Marvel movie came out, we asked him, you know, who's your favourite Marvel character? And you got Silver Surfer? You know. yeah. Who's going to stop, who's going to stop, uh, you know, the, the, the baddie of, I don't know, I'm not a Marvel uh, fan. But, um, yeah, you just straight... Straight to Silver it. Surfer, you know. He was ready for Silver us. Silver Surfer do it. He's yeah. smart, he's quick, and look, we know his house not doing too well. So the fact is still getting up. He's accepting these awards and he's speaking to First Nations media like he's a bloody legend and we have so much love and respect for him and if you haven't read and listened to Tell Me Why then mm. get on to well, it. Well we cleaned up. It wasn't just the Hall of Fame. That's, that's right. right. Artist of the Year, yeah. male yeah. Artist of the Year. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Well look that is a beautiful note on which to end our program. I feel like we could double the time and still not talk about all of the issues uh, that uh, have happened even in a COVID year. So thank you, Rach, Ray and Jack and all of our panellists uh, today for, for coming on. Now, of course, NITV News, Nula and The Point will be back next year, bigger and deadlier than ever. And of course, you can always head to the NITV website and all our social media pages at any time over this summer break to catch up on all the latest Indigenous news. But that's all from us for now. So from everyone here at the NITV News team, have a Merry Christmas and a happy and safe New Year.
black.